Welcome to the Law of Startups podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us. Today, we're lucky to have in the studio Katrina Glogowski. Katrina is a active member of the Seattle community in a number of capacities. Um, Katrina, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Good morning. Hi, Mike. Hi. So, Katrina, you've been active, I mean, in the 502, the cannabis, uh, the legal cannabis marijuana space for how long now? Approximately two years. Uh, it's only been legal in Washington for about four, so okay. about half that time. Wow, it seems like you. It's, it seems like the two years is, must have been dog years or something, because it seems like longer than two years. Yes, it does. It's been a, rapidly changing, so it's always a challenge. Yeah. So we so tell me about how are you involved? Like, so sorry, um, interrupt. Uh, but like, uh, yeah, tell us about what you've been doing. I have been very active in the cannabis space in many ways. I am an investor. I have invested in eight different cannabis startups, both that touch the flower and don't. I run an investment group of like-minded folks that want to join the green rush. And I did a movie. Ah, the movie. What was the movie called again? Legally Stoned. (laughs) So is this movie... In production or is it live? It's out there. It's on YouTube. Go find okay. it. Okay. How many? How long? How long is the movie? What does the, What does the movie do? Like, what's the theme and the plot of the movie? The movie is approximately half an hour long. Okay. And it is educational in nature. So I go out to a farm and get my hands dirty and learn how to grow weed. Okay. It's an interesting concept. We talk about science of the plants and how to cultivate them, how to dry them, and, of course, ultimately sell them. Right. So there's a lot going on in this space. Um, I mean, we have California coming on. I think California just came on recreationally, I think. Correct. January. Right. And then... I've forgotten, is Oregon, Oregon's recreational. Oregon's been recreational for about a year and a half. Okay. And so we have the entire West Coast recreational. Nevada just came on. Yes. Nevada's been a huge market. Absolutely. We have our favorite attorney general of all time, Jeff Sessions, who appears to not perhaps agree with states' rights, although I would think that someone like him would appreciate states' rights. In fact, I thought that was a big political you know, thing in that, in that party until it came out the wrong direction or something politically, I suppose. I, I don't know. Cannabis does seem to be a hot potato, and it's a, sort of the bastard stepchild of all of the illicit drugs, and it tends to get lumped together with some of the more nefarious ones, and Mr. Sessions in particular tends to focus on the opioid crisis, and of course marijuana is not an opioid, uh, but he might need a little bit of vocabulary lessons there sometimes. Maybe. Right. Well, let's hope. I mean, I don't know. I mean, so we have we've had like a pretty um, remarkable um, turn of political events in the last. I don't know when you want to start counting, but who would have thought that uh, we would get to legal marijuana, you know, through states and their initiative processes? I mean, that's pretty fascinating. It is. And in fact, uh, was it New Jersey or Vermont? Uh, Don't quote me on that. The legislature themselves passed legalization without an initiative of the voters. Wow. So that was this most recently, like this year. Okay. Uh, I believe it was in December of 2017. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. 
Well, hopefully that's what Congress will do. It's a yeah. yes. It seems like it's it's politically popular, wouldn't you say? I mean, I don't know. I guess it's shifting, but um, it seems like now that there's states that have uh, legalized um, legalized it and haven't really experienced massive turmoil. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's easy to say we shouldn't legalize it when there's no precedent and you don't know what's going to happen because then it's a question. But, you know, with lots of states having legalized it, it's a lot easier to look at it and say, okay, well, this is terrific for tax revenues and doesn't seem to be having a huge negative impact. Um, yeah. So, I mean, is, is it getting more popular? Is, is the notion becoming more accepted? Absolutely. You now have several states where cannabis is legal recreationally and 32 states where marijuana is medicinally legal. And we have not seen a blow up of drug crimes. We haven't seen a blow up of addiction crises. We haven't seen three-year-olds running around with joints. Uh, The states are effectively uh, monitoring the uh, markets, which brings tax revenue. And then once the states get a taste of the obscene amount of money that they're generating from the taxes, it's very easy for the next state, who's also cash poor, to say, hey, let's legalize marijuana. And I, I believe that we will see complete across-the-board legalization in uh, less than 10 years. Does the next Democrat nominee for president? I mean, one thing, I, and sorry, Mike, if I'm hogging the conversation, but it just seems, it no, just seems to me that one of the, th- one of the things that, I mean, I, I, I mean, politics, whatever, but it just seems to me the Democrats really missed it. I mean, they should have just stood up on the last go around and said, yeah, we're going to absolutely legalize this nationally. It, and they didn't for whatever reason. I don't know why. Maybe because they just thought they were playing not to lose or something like that. But do you think the next Democratic nominee needs to be more vocal and stand up and just say this in a meaningful way? I think any candidate going forward is going to need to take a position on cannabis where it is not already legal. For example, Alabama. If you are pro-cannabis or anti-cannabis, I think it's going to be entering the national dialogue just like gun rights, abortion issues. It's going to be one of those topics that the candidates are certainly going to have to address. As far as Democrats missing the boat, Yes, I agree on that. If if people would be a little bit more honest about it and just say, hey, I smoked weed when I was in college and I didn't die, and guess what? I'm still successful. Life is grand. There's nothing to be ashamed of about cannabis. And then to take a position of legalization. Here in Wa- in Washington, Seattle in particular, there's, there's such a pro-cannabis stance They are now vacating misdemeanor convictions of basically everybody for the last 20 years. That's how normalizing cannabis is in Washington. Right. Sorry, Mike, you were going to ask a question. Oh no, I don't. Uh, I don't remember what it was. But I, I, one of the things I'm curious about is the types of investments you've made in terms of like ways to participate in the uh, this, this greenfield opportunity. Like I, I'm curious to know. It, it seems like investing in cannabis is a tricky business because you have to decide: do you want to cross that line and actually invest? You mentioned you invested in some companies that that actually touch the flower. Like it seems like there's a 
there's a picks and shovels kind of approach where you might you might invest in companies that are just kind of in the space but don't actually touch the the material so that you don't have to worry at all about changes in the law or or federal government swooping in and and um you know seizing all your assets or something like that um versus actually investing in companies that are growing or selling um I'm curious to know you know what that analysis looked like for you and and um I don't know what what you think about uh options for people that want to invest so if you are thinking of investing in cannabis or cannabis-related businesses, I would highly recommend you start with what your state regulations are. We're in Washington, so I'll just refer to Washington's regulations. If you invest in a business that touch the flower, so if you grow it, you process it, or you sell it, you have to register with the state of Washington Liquor and Cannabis Board and provide all sorts of fingerprints and financial information. I'm an attorney, and it took me like four months to get approved by these people. Uh, it's a, quite an arduous process. Is this the, well, sorry to interrupt, but is this the same process you have to go through if you're going to open a bar? Very similar. Uh, Washington modeled their cannabis laws on their liquor laws. So yes, very similar to a liquor license. Okay. Sorry. Keep going, please. And so if you're going to invest in a business that touches the flower, then absolutely you have to think of those considerations. Uh, will you pass the background check? Okay, yes, you will. Then where are you getting the money? They Washington regulates it so heavily. You have to go back six months and show that you had the money to invest in this company for six months. And where did you get the money? And they trying to keep bad actors out of the industry. So as an investor, that is a primary consideration. Now, if you're going to invest in a cannabis-related business, for example, you're going to make a vape pen, a media company, or a packaging company, then those regulations don't apply, and it's much more of a typical investment where you just write a check and get the documents and very little oversight. And so if you're going to invest in cannabis, know what the local laws are. How, how are the businesses doing? Um, so everybody was very excited about this when, when uh, marijuana got legalized. Um, but I know that there was kind of a, it, from an outsider looking in, it, it seemed like there was a lot of kind of dumb, dumb, you know, not, not, not to be pejorative, but kind of dumb money flowing into the space. People that are very enthusiastic about cannabis, but maybe hadn't had any experience running a business, applying for licenses, opening up shops. And so I was kind of curious to know, you know, how it would shake out. Like, will these businesses be successful or will they ultimately go out of business or will there be consolidation? Will the taxes that the state is implying, will they be set too high to allow these businesses to really thrive? I was just kind of, it seemed like a massive opportunity, but it also seemed like there would be like any small business starting up lots of failure. Um, what's it looking like out there? Are these companies surviving? Are they starting to consolidate or go out of business? Well, you asked a lot of questions there all at once, Mike. So I'll try. Yeah, yes, a long one. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll try and answer them all. Uh, so let's start with people who got in the industry. And there was absolutely a lottery system in Washington. You didn't have to have previous experience with cannabis and some people got in and didn't know what they were doing, uh, either with the flower and, hey, I, I'm a 
Amazon millionaire and I'm going to go play with cannabis and I can't tell the difference between THC and CBD, that probably wasn't the best use of your money. Uh, Then there were cannabis people who just had been growing in their basement for 20, 30 years for the medical market and had nothing, no information, no idea of how to run a business. And you are starting to see failures. Uh, We are seeing a lot of failures in Washington. We're, like I said, about four years in, and some folks are struggling. Uh, Now, to answer the consolidation question, Washington state law prohibits verticalization in the cannabis market, and that has presented some problems for a small business. If you're a farm and you grow marijuana, it is very difficult to then subsequently get your cannabis to market and to a retailer. There are some uh, 442 retail licenses in Washington. Only 359 of them or so are operational, but there are 1,293 producer processor licenses. So those are the people that are growing cannabis or making the chocolates or making the cartridges for the pens. And I think we're going to see more consolidation in the future. On the producer processor side or on the retail side? Uh, Across the board. uh, Because a retailer has... When you have one store, you have no buying power. Sure. So if you have five stores or ten stores, I think Washington limits you to five right now, but if you have several stores, it gives you more buying power as well. But from the producer-processor, this year in Washington, uh, the last number I heard was uh, a gram can go as low as 10 cents right now, which is ridiculous. No farmer, no farmer can sell a product at that price level because of the oversupply. Right. Okay. So when we designed this system, it, it always felt to me, and I, Mike, I don't know how much you paid attention to this. And I, I have to admit, I didn't pay a huge amount of attention, but it struck me when we were designing these legalization rules that we, it was like, it was, uh, it was all dreamed up by like the uh, Soviet central planning authority or something. Like I couldn't, <laughs> you know, I guess, I mean, like, how'd they come up with the the numbers? Like, how'd they decide, like, oh, we're only going to allow 450 stores or 500 stores. Oh, we're going to allow 1,500, you know, producer processors. Oh, we're going to allow an unlimited number of farms. I mean, I mean, it just struck me as kind of bizarre how they kind of manufactured this or tried to create this situation. So Washington, again, modeled their cannabis regulations on liquor. Okay. And so they were saying, how many liquor stores do we have? How many bars do we have? How many in each county? And that's where they came up with the numbers. They didn't just pull the numbers out of the air. Huh. But... Didn't it still feel like central planning? It... it I Washington, mean, here we are legalizing marijuana, and we're going to do it like like we're a Soviet central plan economy. It didn't, didn't strike me... It struck me as sort of inconsistent. <laughs> philosophically with the underlying premise but i but i don't know i mean i presume we just if this doesn't work out we we go back and we change the rules so we don't have an economy that's sort of hampered because of structural deficiencies yes washington went about it 
the wrong way. Uh, if you compare Washington and Colorado, who legalized cannabis at the same time, Colorado beat Washington to the market. But Colorado said, hey, we have this medical uh, market already. So when we legalize for recreational use, let's give the people that are already doing it first dibs. Right. Yeah. Well, so we did the opposite in Washington State. We said, oh, if you're medical, you're going to have to go out of business or the medical, it was weird, Mike, because the medical rules never actually said you could sell it to anybody, <laughs> right? That is correct. They said you could, I don't know what they said. They said you could do something. Is it like a donation well, thing? Like one of these things where people donate money or like, or is it a, or a collective of people where they grow on behalf of each other as like a cooperative or something yes, like that? Yes, the medical regulations in Washington prior to the most recent little legislation was you as an individual could grow up to 15 plants. Well, remember, this is the medical market. What if I, what if I am unable for one reason or another to mm -hmm. do so, then you were able to approach a co-op and have, give your 15 plants so, to a co-op and the co-op would grow for you. For them to grow. And so that's how hmm. the medical market really grew. And can you call it a donation when you are the one who actually gave your plants to somebody else? Uh, it was kind of loosey-goosey there for a while, but it was a profitable market. Uh, so, but, but did, hmm. so what happened to that? Did, did it get shut? Did it, did it eventually taper out because of the, the recreational stuff, or is it still existing kind of independently? Well, there's a lot of bad blood in Washington about the medical market. So what happened was when they legalized recreational cannabis in Washington, they did not touch the medical market. So for about two years, Washington had a parallel medical market and a recreational market, and everybody was happy. Then the liquor and cannabis board in their ultimate wisdom said this is silly uh, we don't want medical licenses at all anymore and the bad blood arises because people in the medical market didn't apply for a license in the lottery and and all of these types of things and they got sort of screwed by the state and now today there is no differentiation between the medical market and the recreational market in Washington there's just straight up cannabis market and so the medical market has gone away hmm so those folks just got shut down like that would be if you didn't see it coming or if you didn't get on board and shift you they just kind of uh were forced to close that's it, a shame it is uh there were some 1200 businesses uh, that were affected by that legislation that I really don't think the the state contemplated. So what's curious about this situation, and so Mike, so for example, we set up in Washington State this weird situation where like, okay, if you're a retailer, then you can't be a farmer. <clears throat> and if you're a producer processor, meaning uh, you can't be retail either, although a producer processor can be a farmer, I think. Correct. So any of it, we can't have vertical integration. But other states have not adopted the, that idea. And like, for example, Colorado, as I understand it, um, doesn't have a ver ban on vertical integration. So as a result, though, they have a little different thing going on. Like my understanding, and I think you might have told me this, is that you know what happens is if you're a farmer, well, just like you've got the farmer's got the fruit stand on the corner, <laughs> you know, the marijuana farmer or the cannabis farmer's got the 
you know, the fruit stand on the corner. He, he, they sell what they grow. And so as a consequence, there's not perhaps as much diversity in some of the stores because it's just what the farmer happened to grow growing. He's not necessarily selling other people's stuff. Is that true? or? That is another major difference between the Washington model and the Colorado model. So in Colorado, you are absolutely right. The farmer grows his cannabis, packages his own, and sells his own. So if you go into a, a retail shop in Colorado, now there are big corporate ones, but generally speaking, uh, you're going to see Bob's Weed. And in Washington, that is not the case. In Washington, there's no verticalization, as you said. But what it has created is these weird sub-economies. For example, in Washington, when your cannabis product is on the shelf with a thousand other ones, Uncle Ike's, the largest um, uh, cannabis retailer in the Seattle area, they have over 1,600 products in their store. And so your product has to stand out. It has to compete. So how are you going to do that? Well, you're going to do it through packaging. And in Washington, there is a huge submarket for cannabis packaging, cannabis marketing, and how you're going to get your brand out there to catch the attention of the consumer. In Colorado, it's Bob's Weed sitting up there in a Ziploc baggie. He has no uh, yeah. marketing requirements. Yeah, in Oregon, they just have the weed just in a plastic bin, like a just pull. You know, just, it's kind of strange. I because I'm used to yeah, I'm used to the fancy packaging in Washington State, I guess. And so when I stumble upon a place where there's no fancy packaging, I just kind of wonder what's going on. It's Right. And that's how they set the laws up. That's the difference of verticalization when you talk about verticalization. Um, when there's no crossover, you got to market. Is that is that for tax uh, purposes? I mean, I know that we tax our, our marijuana at like multiple stages, right? So if, if you don't let people sell directly from the farm to the customer, then you get to tax them at the farm stage. You get to tax them at the packaging stage and at the retail stage. Is that is that part of why the Washington folks did it that way, or was it just did it just kind of shake out that way because we didn't know how it was going to work? Well, Mike, let let me clarify. When the law first passed, it was taxed at the producer level, the processor level, and the retail level at twenty five percent each stage. Well, that made legal cannabis way more expensive than black market cannabis. And so approximately a year and a half, two years into legalization, they changed that. And so now cannabis products are only taxed at the retail exchange at 37%. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm, 37%. 37%. Hmm. Then what is the concern with the vertical uh, integration? Like, what would what would be the downside besides the fact that it might run some small businesses out um, as people well, integrate? If you would ask the LCB, they might have a different opinion. But my response to that question is: Washington based their cannabis regulations on liquor regulations, and Washington treats liquor the same way. If you own a winery, you cannot sell your wine to Costco. You have to go to a state distributor. And whether the purpose for the, of that is to handle taxation or, or handle regulation or to give bureaucrats a job, I have no idea. But the reason cannabis is that way is because 
it's based on the liquor regulations. Right. Sort of sort of similar to what Tesla ran into in various states like Texas. Apparently Tesla couldn't sell its cars directly. I'm not sure if that's still true or not. There's something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Like the um the the distributors, like the distributorships have like this massive lobbying power and they have regulations on the books that protect them, interestingly. I guess in the old days, like I've I saw an article about this a while back, but apparently, like in the old days of cars, you know, people needed like reliable places to have their cars worked on, and there was a lot of question about, I don't know, whether certain uh, providers of cars would be like selling lemons or whatever. So they had like heavy regulation on the people that could sell cars, um, but all that stuff just kind of stayed on the books. And these and these distributors make so much money, they like. You know, they have uh, the ability to get this stuff put on the books that you just can't sell something direct. You have to come through us to sell it to the to the consumer, which is kind of uh, anti-competitive, it seems. Yes, and you could make that argument about cannabis as well. Absolutely right. What about there used to be like um, so? I remember when when they legalized cannabis, um, the, the stores hadn't come into existence yet. So there was this like period of time where where cannabis was legalized, but there wasn't really any mechanism to buy it. And there were all these little services and people that kind of popped up and said, "Well, it's legal. I'm going to go sell it anyway." And I remember there were like delivery services I heard about and all kinds of kind of um, I don't know informal like outside the system distribution of cannabis that that sort of happened because people felt like the the um, the, the scrutiny was off like. Nobody was going to bust them for that stuff. Is that stuff still happening? Like, are there still lots of these little, like, um, I don't know, I, I guess there's always going to be the gray, black market, gray market um, distribution. But, like, did that stuff kind of go away once once the actual retail shops opened? Or is there still kind of not a lot of um, law enforcement activity trying to stop people from working outside the system? Well, Mike, there's a few things that are going on in Washington which answer that question. Um, first enforcement, um, Washington actually has had two big cannabis cases since Washington has been legalized, uh, Washington legalized recreational marijuana. Uh, the first is, um, there was a ring of individuals who said, Hey, cannabis is legal and started growing cannabis. And the debate is whether they understood what the regulations were. It was a bunch of Chinese nationals who uh, English was certainly uh, an issue. And their defense was, hey, uh, cannabis is legal. Why are you arresting me? And so we will see how that case pans out. There was also. I'm guessing that's not a great defense. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, like as as lawyers, we all know that like you can't like you can't claim ignorance of the law as a reason why you didn't have to follow the law. I'd be curious to know how that. Yeah, one plays we're all out. waiting to see because it was a huge ring. There was uh, I think 17 grow locations, uh, and we will see how that pans out because yes, uh, cannabis is legal, but you have to still follow the law. Uh, and the second major case involved a Washington police officer who had a tricked out RV and he was taking Washington cannabis in his RV across the country to, I don't know what state is in the middle where he was bound to deliver it. And of course, that's against federal regulations. Once you cross state lines, you're in deep doo-doo. And so that police officer is currently being prosecuted as well. And we will see what happens with that. Uh, and then to answer the first part of your question, right when 
cannabis was legalized recreationally, the state was not ready for it. And you see the same thing in California and Nevada. They ran out of weed in three days when they finally opened the market. Uh, California ran out of weed in about 12 days. And then in Washington, what I think you were referring to of delivery services and folks coming out with um, creative, maybe gray market things, I think what you're really referring to is the vestiges of the medical market uh, that, because remember, medical was legal in Washington for several years prior to recreational, and I think that's really what you're referring to. Uh, but if the point of your question is, is there still illegal weed in Washington? Uh, the answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, there's always going to be. Yeah, I guess I was thinking like there was there were stories about like and you, I think you see this in California a lot, maybe around Sil- Silicon Valley, where it's like, oh, there's a startup and they're going to do weed delivery. And they're like, we're going to be like the the I don't know. Uh, you know, delivery service for, for weed and, you know, you just punch it in on your app and it shows up at your house and it, and you look at that and you say, well, that doesn't sound consistent with what the law allows. Like, I don't know if that's something that's going to happen uh, or, or if that'll work in the long run. And then, you, and then you think, well, maybe they're just assuming that like, there's just not a lot of regulation happening now that they've legalized it. The police are on to other things. Maybe we'll just see how we can, you know, if we can roll something out that has, uh, you know, like delivering from the stores to the consumer. And that's, um, that seems to be yeah, the one yeah. I always hear about is the like t- delivery because that's not part yeah, of the system. Delivery is right? an example. That that is not legal right now, right? That is correct. In our state, delivery is illegal in Washington. So if you have a kind gentleman who wants to go over to uh, Uncle Ike's on a bike and get it for you and bring it to your house, he could get in doo doo if if that if he was caught doing that because that's against the law in Washington. Any delivery is against the law in Washington. But again, state by state. Different states have different regulations, and in California, you can get cannabis out of a vending machine, huh. and you have been able really? to do so do they... for twenty years. A vending machine, because of uh, that's a part of their existing medical structure, medical marijuana. Like, the, is that? I assume that's that would have to be it, right? Like, uh, so you, people go into a dispensary, and then there's a vending machine there. Or it's not like the vending machine could be somewhere where. I assume they still have to card people and, I don't know, make sure that they're old enough, right? How, how does the vending machine work? So you get a medical card. It has a barcode on it. And you scan the medical card. You put the money in. And these vending machines are at Quickie Marts, et cetera. There's no, you don't have to go in a wow. retail location. Hmm. It's, it was very successful in, in California. Very successful. Does that still exist under the new scheme? Like, or is that uh, part of the old, uh, how did, I don't know, how did California handle the medical marijuana once they went? They just combined it to my knowledge. Uh, I don't have Mm -hmm. an intimate knowledge of California statutes, uh, but my information is that they're together, sort of like Colorado. See, that weed vending machine sounds like the right way to go from an investment standpoint. It's, a, it's kind of a, you know, like if you want to participate in, in the marijuana economy, but you don't want to be registered and be, you know, um, have your, you know, be potentially involved with something that the federal government might consider illegal, you could be, you could invest or build, you know, vending machines. That seems like a good way to yeah. participate. Yeah. Uh, a safe, safe yeah. way to participate. The, the industry needs exactly. that sort of stuff. Hey, Katrina, tell us a little bit. We're almost out of time here, but tell us a little bit about your, your group that meets, the group that meets to hear pitches. 
So the Cannabis Investment Group is a group of approximately 30 accredited investors who if, have expressed interest in investing in cannabis and cannabis-related businesses. The typical angel investment group doesn't really want to deal with cannabis, uh, and there's some politics behind that, there's some personalities behind that, and there may be regulations behind that if you have a fund. Uh, so what I did is I called from all of those organizations and formed my own group, and we're very happy with it. It's working out very well. That's nice. Yeah, so if you're out there listening to this, um podcast uh and you're wondering about uh katrina's group or the group she's organized how how do what's the best way for people to find out about that should they just email you or google you or what how do they figure it out yeah you can find me on google you can find me on linkedin you can find me on facebook uh you can i'm an attorney so katrina glogowski i'm the only one uh so you'll be able to find me I'm the only Katrina Glogowski. <laughs> in, in, in our little suburb of Seattle. <laughs> there, has, there has to be others. But it's a good, unique name. I, I would challenge you to find another Katrina Glogowski. Anywhere, okay. I, I, I put a dollar on that. <laughs> All right, well, okay, so you're in that cool group. Mike, do you have any other further thoughts today or things you'd like to talk about? No, it's been good. Good, good chat. This has been great. Thanks for taking the time to share with us. This is really yeah. interesting Katrina, stuff. Do you have any parting thoughts for us today? Yes, I do. Okay, well, let's hear. My parting thought is if you are interested in getting involved in cannabis, first and foremost, figure out what the regulations where you are is. But don't be afraid. Jeff Sessions is not going to come knock on your door. You, you have the ability to make real money in this space if you know what you are doing. And I would recommend hiring an attorney, doing your research, but don't stay out of the cannabis space out of fear. I didn't, and I'm doing great. Well, that's good advice. I think that's good advice. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I think with all private investments, I think people, there's a barrier, right? I mean, first, you've got to be an accredited investor to really play here. And then, two, I mean, even if you are an accredited investor, there's a there's like an information uh, community barrier, too, because it's not like people are posting their cannabis investment opportunities on a web portal where you can just go click a few boxes. Like, no one's doing a, well, there might be some WeFunders funders that are cannabis-related businesses. Actually, they're non uh, licensed businesses, correct? Like people who create the vending machines or something. There might be things like that on WeFunder or other online portals. So that's, I mean, that's one way you could get involved for pretty inexpensive amounts of money. I think. Mm-hmm. Mike, have you, have you done anything through WeFunder or any of the online portals? No, no. They, I've I've looked at AngelList a bit. I mean, obviously that's not weed related, but uh, but yeah. I mean, uh, in terms of online looking at investment opportunities, I think AngelList is the only one I've really yeah. spent any time on. Yeah, yeah. Is weed weed funder is like an oh, angel no, list for weed? We, we that, funder, we uh, funder the. Oh, we. <laughs> <Yeah, that's laughs> right. I thought you said weed. It's it's weed weed funder. <laughs> weed funder. So yeah, yeah. That. I'm like I don't think I've been to weed funder. <laughs> yeah, that's actually curious. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think weed funder is a really popular Title Three equity crowdfunding platform, and uh, it's kind of I mean you ought to check it out. I mean if you and that you know that it's an easy way to get involved as a non-accredited investor, making small investments in a variety of different types of businesses if you're if you're looking to make that kind of those types of investments so there are websites out there there's fund anna and there is arc view uh arc view is sort of a 
ancillary business uh, funding platform, uh, but Fund Anna will allow you to put ten thousand dollars in and for equity or uh, debt. So there there are resources out there, and I chan- if you are interested in investing in cannabis, there's there's ways to do so. Yeah. Fun stuff. Well, thank you again for being with us. Thank you. Yeah. And thanks everyone else for listening. We'll see you all next week.